Welcome to Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast with Elizabeth Crawford, where I dish with trendsetters, tastemakers, and other experts in the food and beverage industry about everything from emerging trends to regulatory pressures to marketing strategies. Soy may be best known in America as a source of high-quality protein, but as more trendy and allergen-friendly sources of plant-based protein enter the market, the bean may need to evolve its marketing strategy to better highlight some of its many other health attributes to remain relative to consumers. Euromonitor data shows that retail value of soy drinks and milk-like beverages have fallen a staggering 55% since 2015, as has consumption of soy protein isolate and soy protein concentrate, which each fell 0.8% and 1.2% from 2013 to 2015. This drop is likely due in part to the increased fragmentation of the plant-based protein market, which now includes some really unexpected sources such as duckweed and mushrooms. The same reason explains the dip in soy-based beverages. Even though soy was a front-runner in the category, it's inevitable that its share would shrink as other non-dairy milks made from macadamia nuts and peanuts and even pecans entered the market. But there's so much more to soy than just protein that can benefit people's health and that of the planet. At the Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo in Boston last month, soy expert Mark Messina, who has researched soybeans for 30 years, walked me through the crop's multitude of benefits for people. Well, at the basic level, from a nutrient perspective, it's low in saturated fat, high in polyunsaturated fat, and provides really high-quality protein. Soybean has more protein than any other bean, and the quality of the protein is higher than all the other plant proteins. So that's from a basic nutrient perspective. It also provides a number of important vitamin minerals like potassium, and potassium is especially important because very few Americans meet the recommended uh, dietary allowance for uh, potassium, and it's a really important mineral. So I think just from a nutrient perspective, you can make an argument that people should be consuming more soy. It also provides fiber, and some of the foods provide oligosaccharides, which are these uh, relatively small sugars that are not very well digested by our intestinal enzymes. So they travel to the colon, where they are metabolized by our intestinal bacteria. They end up stimulating the growth of friendly bacteria, which may have a host of benefits. So. Again, from a nutrient perspective, you can recommend more soy foods. They're easy to get into the diet because there's so many different types. Mark added the benefits of soy go beyond these basics. In the past 25 years, he said, the focus on soy has shifted to its potential role in preventing a broad range of chronic diseases. got into the field 30 years ago, literally now, uh, because of my belief that soy might reduce risk of breast cancer. You know, the, that hypothesis was fueled initially by the low rates in soy food consuming countries. But those are interesting observations, but they're grounds for further research, but not for drawing any conclusions. Over the past 25 years, there's been good news and bad news with respect to breast cancer. I think the little bit of a disappointing news is that uh, adult soy intake doesn't reduce risk, in my opinion. I've held that opinion for 20 years. but I strongly believe that if you consume soy when you're young, you can substantially reduce your risk of breast cancer later on in life. And that 
hypothesis is probably one that, for whatever reason, hasn't received the attention it deserves, because these studies, and these are population studies, actually show that um, women who consumed about one and a half servings of soy per day when they were teenagers are anywhere from 20 to 50% less likely to develop breast cancer as an adult. So the notion that you could consume a cup of soy milk and reduce your breast cancer risk later in life is pretty darn awesome. And it's a, because it's a nutritious food and it's easy to get into the diet, for me it's a no-brainer that girls should be consuming at least a serving of soy. And we don't know when the ideal time is, but anywhere from childhood through probably the years of 18. Now, I think they should consume it after that, but for breast cancer protection, I think that's the key. On the flip side, there was this concern that breast cancer patients may need to avoid soy because it contains phytoestrogens. And so a lot of oncologists for, oh, until very recently, were recommending that their patients avoid soy. Uh, patients were doing it on their own. And now, although the word hasn't totally gotten out, it is getting out solely, the evidence, both the clinical and epidemiologic data, actually suggests not only that soy is safe for breast cancer patients, that it is potentially beneficial. So there are studies involving uh, 11,000 breast cancer patients, five different studies, three from China, two from the U.S., that show if you consume soy after a diagnosis of breast cancer, you reduce your risk of recurrence and of dying from the disease. So that's just really fantastic news. A closer look at three of those studies, the pooled analysis of which was published in 2012 in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, found specifically that the risk of overall mortality fell 13% among women who consumed more soy, while deaths from breast cancer fell 17%, and tumor reoccurrence dropped 25%. Unfortunately, the exact mechanism for the benefit of consuming soy after diagnosis remains a mystery. Uh, on the heart disease front, the high polyunsaturated fat content of soy is important. Soy protein itself has a health claim because it directly lowers blood cholesterol levels and it may all lower it may also lower blood pressure. We know less about the effect of soy on bone health. Um, there's some decent data for soy reducing risk of prostate cancer. These claims, which are based on consuming 25 grams of soy a day, are under attack. New evidence that came to light in the past 10 years prompted the FDA to open an investigation to review the totality of the soy research. And while the agency has yet to render its verdict, last February it did deny a citizen petition requesting the claim be revoked. In that case, the agency explained the evidence was not strong enough, but that it would add that research to its larger pile for the ongoing review. As for soy's impact on prostate cancer, epidemiological data published in 2009 in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition and the Nutrition and Cancer Journal suggests soy intake could reduce prostate cancer risk by as much as half. While we're on the topic of men's health, studies published in late 2000s in the Journal of Nutrition and Fertility and Sterility show soy has no effect on circulating reproductive hormone levels in men, debunking the common myth that soy feminizes men. Finally, Mark put in a quick plug for his most recent research on soy. I just published a paper in the journal Menopause that shows that soy may be uh, an antidepressant, which is uh, 
pretty fantastic, actually, because a lot of people are suffer from depression, at least mild depression, and they're not being treated for it. And many of these drugs are only relative, uh, not all that uh, effective. So I think something like soy would be a wonderful uh, first approach. And in fact, there was a study today, I'm pointing down for some strange reason, uh, I don't know where you're pointing when you say today, but I just, I just downloaded it like three hours ago showing that soy consumption during pregnancy alleviated depression. So there's a lot, so, so some of the pr proposed benefits are fairly solid and others are much more speculative because when it comes to chronic disease, uh, I'm sure you know this, you can only prove something definitively by a clinical trial. And it's really hard to do dietary studies, long-term dietary studies, looking at clinically relevant, well, the, the most clinically relevant endpoints. So you can do a dietary study looking at effect on blood pressure and cholesterol, but to actually intervene to see if people get fewer heart attacks, that's so difficult because, you know, if you take 10,000 healthy people, um, you know, over five years only a relative handful, handful are actually going to have a heart attack. So you have to go out for a long time and the studies have to be huge or prohibitively expensive. And if you're actually not just looking at like a single component like soy, but you use utilizing a more comprehensive approach, changing many things, compliance becomes a big issue because if you take a bunch of Westerners, not present company excluded, of course, and put them on a really healthy diet, you know, a year later, 20% are going to have dropped out of the study or won't be consuming what you have. So, so you have to, our understanding of diet and chronic disease is based on imperfect data, but you have to base it on something. So um, I think there's some really good data for soy. I mean, there's no doubt that it's a food that is underutilized and people in general should be consuming more beans and because, I mean, everybody recommends that and because, I mean, I eat lots of beans, not just soy. It's a wonderful food. They're inexpensive. They're high in protein. Um, and I think soy, because it's such a convenient way to get a bean into your diet, to give soy milk, soy nuts, edamame, I think it's a really good choice. Soy isn't just good for people, it's also good for the planet. Nancy Kavazanjian, who is a fourth-generation farmer and director of the United Soybean Board, explained how growing soy is helping to strengthen the sustainability of her farm by improving the health of the soil. So, for me, sustainability is so important. When we started farming together, my husband and I, 30 years ago now, we took as our farm motto, our soil, our strength, because we knew if we could be sustainable and have really good soil, we would help. And so for us, sustainability and being, carrying on that farming tradition is really important, too, because my husband's a fourth-generation farmer. We've got our grandson that we hope someday will farm, so we look to that. And we know our natural resources are what make us farmers. So we have to really protect our soil. And the great thing about soybeans is it's one of those crops that actually fixes nitrogen. So when we're growing corn, which we also grow a lot of corn for feed, and we can rotate the soybeans and then to wheat, we're really improving our soil. So sustainability is all about a whole cropping system that really works for us. And soybeans are enabling everybody in Wisconsin. It's a really fast-growing crop. We're growing more and more acres. 
markets are going more and more uh, yield per acre just because we're understanding how to use this great uh, crop soybeans, which is able to utilize the nitrogen from the air because it's a lejeune and it fixes nitrogen. And it also improves our soil health. When talking about the health impact on the plant of soy, it's impossible to ignore the dual impact of genetic engineering, considering soy is practically the poster child of technology in the U.S. According to USDA data, 94% of soy planted in the U.S. in 2016 was genetically modified to be herbicide tolerant. This is up from 17% about 20 years ago in 1997 and it is a higher percentage than any other U.S. crop. Herbicide-tolerant corn and cotton come in a distant second at 89%, followed by insect-resistant cotton at 84%, and insect-resistant corn at 79%. And while GMO gets a bad rap among Americans, Nancy says biotechnology has helped her farm soy more sustainably, and it's also improved soy's nutrition. You know, as a farmer, again, it... it GMOs and biotechnology has really enabled us to farm smarter and more sustainably because we can grow more per acre with less input, less fuel, less herbicide use, less fertilizer. But because of this whole debate, I'm thinking about this a lot lately, for the last decade, the whole fear-mongering over GMOs has meant that we haven't been able to advance that science as much as we want to. We have this great soybean, a high oleic soybean, has a great nutritional value, but everybody's so freaked out about the idea that we're doing something to the genetics of the seed uh, in the lab as opposed to the old-fashioned way that took us 10 generations. So everybody's so up worried about that, needlessly too, that we haven't been able to advance the science. And really all GMOs is is a, is a technique for breeding better seed. The organic people breed better seed every day too. They just do it very slowly in a very old-fashioned open-air way where we can now use science and technology to do it exactly. And it's frustrating to me as a farmer that I can't convince the public that this is a better way to farm because it really is. It's using advanced technology to make us more sustainable and better farmers. And um, so it's impacting me because, again, I can't grow my high oleic soybeans in Wisconsin yet because we haven't advanced the science enough to where I have a variety that works in my climate. Okay? And a lot of that is because of the fear monitoring that went on. So I think we would have had a lot more biofortified foods right now if people had accepted biotechnology uh, a dozen years ago. Nancy believes educating consumers about what genetic engineering is and how it compares to traditional breeding will help consumers feel more comfortable with GMOs. But that alone isn't enough. I'd love to be able to educate people. We have to stop the fear mongering. We have to stop the anti-GMO and people saying, oh, this has no GMOs in it. Because a GMO is just a scientific technique for breeding seed. I'm gonna say that a bunch of times. I wish I could convince people of that. I don't know. I don't know how we educate it, but we need everybody to try and, and um, counteract the fear mongering in it. Some genetic engineering advocates hope that once the federal law passed this summer requiring mandatory GMO labeling goes into effect, consumers will see how prevalent they are and learn that they've consumed them for years with no apparent ill effect. But Nancy isn't so sure. 
I don't know. I don't know if people really read the back of the label as much as they should. I'm sure dietitians wish we all did read the back of the label more. What I wish would stop is the front of the label marketing, the um, anti-science marketing, and you know, it's just that's what is still impacting our our industry. And I don't know how it's going to stop. Um, I think we've confused the consumer more than anything, and I don't know if the labeling issue is going to change anything. But it isn't all doom and gloom on the farmstead. Nancy says there are many ways that modern technology beyond genetic engineering is helping to boost sustainability. Oh, so much opportunity for us to be more sustainable using modern technology. There's so much going on on the farm that people think we're still the old um, dour, uh, what is that, the lady with the, the, or the guy with the pitchfork and the lady with the apron on. Um, we're not the American Gothic farmer anymore. We really are. We've embraced modern technology. We're using GPS to make sure we get all our crop inputs exactly where we need them. And we, I, I haven't tilled my soil in almost 30 years, so I'm protecting my soil. I care about the water and the air. We're growing more and more with less. And, and all the data management that's coming at us as farmers, that's going to make us better, smarter, more sustainable than ever. So, and, and we're also, the other thing that's really exciting to me is we're learning about the soil. I told you my farm motto is our soil, our strength, and soil is a living organism just like all that biota we have in our stomach. We have all that microbiota going on in the soil, and we're learning that those there are good microbes and there are bad microbes, and we're learning how to manage them naturally without a lot of chemicals, without tillage, so that we can grow better crops. And I think we're going to see a revolution underground with all these microbiota, just like what we're seeing with the gut microbiota. So that's exciting for me. And with that, we've come full circle. As Nancy noted earlier, soy can play a key role in the revolution underground by fixing nitrogen to help fuel the health of the soil's quote-unquote microbiota while at the same time providing the exact same service for people's actual microbiota, as Mark also mentioned. For Food Navigator USA's Soup to Nuts podcast, I'm Elizabeth Crawford.